invite you, if you would, take your Bibles with me this morning. <clears throat> Open them back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, and back to verse 18. Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, back to verse 18. As we finish up this passage of Scripture that we began two weeks ago, where we find our Lord teaching on a, a rather important subject in the theme of Scripture. He's explaining what the kingdom of God is like. Look with me in Luke chapter 13, verse 18. And Luke records and reports to us what Jesus is saying in verse 18. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man planted in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. And we noticed last week or two weeks ago in verse 18, we understand very clearly what the Lord's trying to do by His own language. He's wanting to explain the kingdom of God by way of comparison. And so He uses two object lessons that both have very uh, significant similarities. We talked about both of them deal with growth. They start off smaller, they become bigger. Uh, we talked about both of them uh, have to be dealt with in action. We find in this text a man is planting a seed, a woman is putting uh, leaven into flour. We talked about both of these comparisons affect their surroundings. Uh, both of them take time, they're not instant. Both of them symbolize life and the, the newness of life. And yet, they're very distinct in what they represent. Now, I want to recap just a little bit because it's been two weeks since we've covered this passage and highlight again for you the central importance of the theme of the kingdom of God in Scripture. We talked about the, the importance of it being in the New Testament because we looked back in Luke chapter 11, verse 2, where the Lord is teaching His disciples and by extension us how to pray, and in verse 2 of Luke 11, he says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And we talked about two, two things uh, in regards to that, that prayer and the kingdom being mentioned. Number one, we said just the fact that it's mentioned uh, shows its significance, right? And Christ saying, these are the things I want you to pray about. Well, one of them is the kingdom of God, and it's coming. But also, by, by the order of the prayer, Jesus says, when you pray, I want you to first acknowledge the hallowed name of God, the, the holy, transcendent nature and character of God. And directly following that, I want the kingdom of God to be on your mind. And we talked about, or I tried to remind you when we covered that section in Luke 11, um, we talked about praying for the kingdom of God means praying that God... We want your rule and your, stab, your, your standards to be established here and now. This world is wicked, right? And it's falling apart. And it doesn't live up to God's expectations. It doesn't follow God's 
laws. It doesn't follow God's moral standards. It doesn't follow God's direction or what anything God has to say. And as Christians, it should be on our hearts. We should be concerned constantly with the things of God being obeyed here and now. That's what makes for an abundant, joyous life, right? And so we want the kingdom of God to be established here and now and fully, clearly. And we talked about that. That truth doesn't negate that Christ is already currently the King of all things and Lord of all things, whether people want to admit that or not. He is sovereignly reigning and ruling over all creation undisputedly. Yet, when we pray, Lord, we want Your kingdom to come, we're praying we want Your rule to be realized in the world. We want You to be submitted to Christ as is right and as You deserve. But also part of that is the personal aspect, isn't it? God, we want Your kingdom to come in our lives. We want our hearts to be governed by You and You alone, Christ. We want to live as new citizens of a new country. That's our prayer. Well, the kingdom of God is not just a central New Testament theme. It is also a central scriptural theme. From the very beginning, God has His kingdom in mind. And He's communicated that from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 6, God says this to Abram. Abraham at this time. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. And then God says this, and kings shall come from you. Well, there's, there's not even remotely close to the horizon of Israel at this point, a kingdom. And yet God is already saying, kings, Abraham, will come from you. A kingdom will extend from your lineage. We tie that back to God saying to Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. Now no doubt God had in mind the, the future kingdom of Israel that would be established and, and future, the, the future Davidic covenant that would be established where David is sitting on the throne and reigning as king and then his son Solomon and, and, and the lineage and on and on and on. But we know through Scripture that all of this was to point to one greater king, right? Christ. And so when God says to Abram, Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you, we know He's talking about Christ. And when God says in 17.6, kings shall come from you, we know He's ultimately pointing to Christ, the King. And so, God already promises in Genesis 17.6 as He's already beginning His plan of redemption by setting apart a people for His own possession, a people through Abraham and his lineage and his family and, and all of these things. He's already got His kingdom being expressed and established. We see it further evidenced when the age of judges comes to an end and Israel begs for a king and God gives them one. Which, by the way, it's not that Israel begged for a king that God was disappointed with them about. God had intended a king to rule over them. What disappointed God when Israel begged for a king was their motive and their lack of trusting in Him as king. Their motive was that they wanted to be like the other nations. They didn't trust God to be their king either. But God had a plan the whole time for a kingdom 
to be established and a king to reign. And then we usher in, like I said, the Davidic covenant where God promises eventually one will sit on your throne and, and your throne will endure forever, David. Well, that is Christ. So the kingdom of God, as discussed here in verses 18 through 21 of Luke chapter 13, as we've mentioned prior, is incredibly important. An important subject for you and I. Because it's important to God and it's been revealed throughout all of Scripture. In fact, we talked about a few weeks ago, its culmination is realized in the second coming of Christ, which is for the very purpose of finally, once for all, in complete totality, establishing His kingdom. We long for the day of Jesus to come back because that's when your kingdom come and the Lord's prayer is finally realized. Your kingdom come, our Lord. When we talk about His kingdom, I'll highlight again, we talk about His rule. We talk about His reign. We talk about His lordship. We talk about His throne. We talk about Him executing pure justice in the world. We talk about Him and His rule being followed in the land. It is the reestablishing of Eden in a new heaven and a new earth. Well, I, I've, I don't want to neglect the fact that this is not just a, a survey overview. Again, it's also very personal to us, right? The subject matter that we look at and that Jesus discusses here in Luke chapter 13 dictates and determines and informs our everyday lives as Christians, right? Because again, we're governed now by a different authority. We're governed by a different society. We're governed by a different government. We're governed by the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ. And so He informs what our pleasures are. And He informs what our morals are. And He informs how we define integrity. And He informs what is right and what is wrong in our lives. Not the world around us. When we are saved, we're plucked up, not instantaneously as we'll talk about, but we're plucked up out of this world and we become sojourners and strangers. We become aliens here because now we're citizens of a far better country, a far greater kingdom, and we are to live by the rules and laws as established in that kingdom. The subject matter is not only important because it's a central theme of the Scriptures that God has been communicating over and over and over again, but it's also important because this is what we live by. You go through your day each and every day and you shouldn't be concerned with how you look in the world's eyes. You should be concerned with your citizenship in heaven. That's what matters. Well, two weeks ago we covered the first object comparison. And verse 19 is a grain of mustard seed. And I, I feel like I could preach that again because it's so significant, but I won't. If you remember, or maybe if you want to go back and listen later, we, we talked about the structure of Luke's language here, the things he includes, the things he doesn't include in comparison to the other parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark. We talked about the language that he uses and we came to the conclusion that Luke is primarily focused not on the transformation of this tiny seed 
into something else, but the, the final result of that seed. The final result of this very tiny mustard seed is that it becomes a tree. More in the shape of a shrub, but about 15 to 20 feet high. And we focused a lot on the last part of verse 19. The birds of the air made their nests in its branches. That's very specific language for Christ to be using. He's deliberate and precise in His words, isn't He? And He doesn't say the birds rested there. As they were flying to and fro and looking for worms and water and bugs and stuff, a mustard seed bloomed into a tree where they could take a brief break. No, it's strong enough. It's sturdy enough. It's secure enough. It's established enough that the language actually says birds dwell there. They find enough protection and strength and resources to build their nests there and raise little birds in its branches. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of strength. We highlighted three things about the mustard seed. I just want to recap them very quickly if you'll indulge with me. Three things about the mustard seed compared to the kingdom that we could observe. Number one, the kingdom of God might be hidden from some, but it will be undeniable later. Just as small as the mustard seed is, some people might not even know its presence. But eventually, when it's planted and watered and it grows, its reality, its presence will be undeniable. Well, so too it is with the kingdom of God. The world right now that we live in neglects the kingdom of God, rejects the kingdom of God, denies the kingdom of God, ignores the kingdom of God. But a day is coming when the kingdom of God will be undeniable. Its presence will be unmistakable. When Christ returns, there will be no doubt who the King is. And there will be no doubt of what the kingdom of God is. Well, number two, we highlighted that the kingdom of God, like a mustard seed, may start off slowly, but it will reach fullness. And we even said the comparison that Christ uses of a mustard seed is somewhat, somewhat a prophecy of growth, right? We might plant a mustard seed and, and we talked about how tiny they are. We might plant a mustard seed and, and not see any action for a while. But underneath the soil, it's germinating. It's laying roots, sprouting. And eventually it's growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it reaches its fullness. But we ought not lose heart as Christians in regards to the work of the kingdom of God because it behaves much in the same way. It might start off slowly in an individual's life. But by God's grace, it will reach fullness. It might have little impact in places of the world right now, in places of the world today, but by God's grace, one day it will have full impact over the whole world. And number three, which was the main, main thrust of what I thought the comparison of the mustard seed was, is that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of strength and security. Just like that tree where birds can make their nests and raise their young and live and dwell, we have a kingdom that is strong enough to house us all. Strong enough to not be vanquished or overcome. 
Well, today in verse 20 and 21, we move on to the Lord's second object of comparison to describe the kingdom of God. He uses almost the same language in verse 20 that he did in verse 18. He said again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? This time it's something drastically different from a mustard seed. Although they have similarities, the meaning is different. The object is in a different category. And he says in verse 21, it is like leaven. Some of your Bibles may say yeast. That a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Well, we have to ask ourselves this one question. What is the effect of the kingdom of God? And that's really what we come to discuss and discover in today's two verses as we wrap up this text. What is the effect of the kingdom of God? Its strength is unmatched. We get that now from the mustard seed. But what effect will it have, does it have upon the world and upon the souls of humanity? Well, this, if you remember in the context, this teaching of our Lord comes in direct uh, connection to verses 10 through 17 of Luke 13, where Jesus has just been teaching in the synagogue and he heals a woman in the synagogue on the Sabbath and the ruler of the synagogue gets mad because he healed the woman on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And Jesus has to explain to this ruler, you totally don't get it. You don't get the things of God. You don't get the, the desire of God. You don't get the presence of God. And so here's this teaching on the kingdom of God taking place. It has the strength to overcome the evil as it did in this woman's life. And it has the effect bring about a complete change and transformation. It's in direct connection to what he's just encountered in the synagogue. Now to everybody who would have been listening, this illustration would have made complete and total sense. Because everybody was basically responsible for making their own bread during this time. They would have known what yeast was. They would have known what leaven was. In fact, Jesus uses this Illustration in primarily negative connotations throughout the rest of Scripture, although this one is positive. He's used it over and over and over because it's such a common picture and a common understanding for people. They know that if you want to make bread, you mix it with the flour. It is a crucial, crucial ingredient. This makes complete sense to his listeners. And for those of you that don't know, and I'm sure most of you do, once it mix, it's mixed in and it only takes just a little bit, well, over time it silently starts to spread throughout the dough, causing it to rise and makes it something edible, something different, makes it into bread. Well now, as you can imagine, the connection is quite simple, isn't it? It's the same with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God slowly affects and changes the soul of a person. Church, this is a glorious truth. We take comfort and we rejoice in the strength of the kingdom of God and that strength is derived directly from the king of the kingdom. We rejoice in the, in the fact that that kingdom will never be overthrown. 
Its enemies will never prevail against it. We rejoice in that. We have joy in that. But this truth, this truth makes our souls weep with joy. Because this truth is so intimate. This truth is so personal. The kingdom of God is not only strong, but it's strong enough to affect complete change in the soul of humanity. That's not what was expected. In fact, Jesus' teaching here is incredibly radical to His listeners. The Jewish people, they expected the kingdom of God to be established. They've been waiting for a king like David to come back. It's such a central theme to the Scriptures. They know the, the language, the phrase, the kingdom of God. And they have preconceived notions of what it's going to be like. Most notably, they want it to be like it was when David was king. You know, when David was king, God delivered Israel from all our enemies. That's why David couldn't build the temple. Because he had shed blood in battle. Shed blood in war. God delivered Israel from all their enemies and gave them a time of peace and prosperity because of David and his reign. And so when they think of the kingdom of God, they're thinking there's going to come one who is like David, only greater. And he's going to sit on the throne, reestablish Israel, get rid of these oppressive jerks, Rome, and all of our enemies will be dismantled we will have peace and prosperity once again. And then here comes Jesus and He says, well, let me, let me really tell you what the kingdom of God's like. It is strong, but it's not going to do that. The kingdom of God penetrates hearts. Heart by heart by heart by heart. In my understanding, that's true strength. That's true conquering. Because not a one of us have managed to conquer our own hearts. And yet, here's a kingdom, Jesus says. It's not going to be like what you think. I'm not going to go after Caesar. I'm not going to dispel Pilate. I'm going to use Pilate to accomplish the real purpose of the kingdom. To penetrate the hearts of sinful humanity. The ruler of the synagogue who got mad at Jesus and mad at the people in Chapter chapter 13, verses 10-17. through 17. What verse is this guy mentioned in? Verse 14. He totally didn't get it. And at this point in Jesus' teaching, neither does anybody else. The kingdom of God is like leaven. It's slowly affecting and slowly changing the soul of a person. It's not what you think it is. It is entirely spiritual. Entirely. We have a word for this today. You know what it is, right? Sanctification. Sanctification. The kingdom of God is working sanctification within our souls to make us new creations. To change who we are from the inside out. The world has tried for ages to create a better society by changing people from the outside, trying to get it on the inside. 
This is the only solution to a better society. Hearts changed from the inside by this kingdom to the outside. That's what Jesus is getting at here. I find it such a significant truth that God would care enough about us to change us from who we were and who we are to be like His Son. How undeserving are we of such a reality? Perfection in the flesh is who Christ is. Perfectly moral, perfectly pure, perfect in His character, perfect in His thoughts. Not, Not one lustful thought ventures through the mind of Christ. Not one second of doubting God's faithfulness. Not one moment of anger at God. Not one moment of lack of faith. Not one moment of pride has passed through His heart. And God would say, I will take you who are the exact opposite of that and I will begin to work in you that beautiful, beautiful reality. The kingdom of God is beautiful to us because it doesn't let us stay as we are. It makes us new. It makes us different. It makes us like Christ. It is the crucial ingredient to being a new creation. Just as dough cannot become bread without leaven, neither can you become better without Christ. Impossible. Impossible. Now really, in truth, the kingdom of Christ, it can have another effect. It really gives two options to people. Two two effects that it can render upon a human soul, but it does touch the human soul. Make no mistake about it. It's either going to one, destroy, or two, affect the change that we've been talking about. There are many, many people who by God's grace have seen and tasted portions of the kingdom of God and the hope to come. And they have rebelled and denied and fought hard against it. And in the day when the kingdom is established and when it comes, it will destroy the enemies. In fact, the strength of the kingdom will be on display when the king ushers with one voice One word, one fatal swipe, and all the enemies of that kingdom will be vanquished forever. Or it can have this effect that we're talking about. It can conform its citizens to the heart of Christ. Which means, just let me tell you this by way of application, it means it changes a person's outlook on the world. It changes a person's attitude in the world. It changes a person's desires. It changes our pleasures, our hopes, the entire way that we live our lives. Because again, it is now our governing standard. And the question has to be asked in self-reflection, right? Is my perspective different from that of the world? 
Is my outlook any different from the lost person next to me? Are my desires different than the world? My pleasures different? My hopes and dreams different? We so easily buy into the lie that retirement is the goal. We so easily buy into the lie that possessions and money, that's the goal because that's happiness and that's safety and that's comfort. We buy into all the lies of the world forgetting that now we're conformed by the King of our kingdom to have a different worldly perspective. We forget that our allegiance is now here to this kingdom. And really, this won't set well with some of you. It's to this kingdom alone. Oh, if we fought for the kingdom of our God as hard as we fought against our party politics today in American democracy, how many converts might we see? How much glory might our God get? Satan loves nothing more than to confuse you and distract you with good social initiatives and politicking and arguments and debates so long as you're not concerned about the kingdom of God. In fact, they might be two of the same things. Some of the things of the kingdom of God might be the very same social initiatives of a given political party. They might line up perfectly, but so long as you're focused more on your political agenda than you are the kingdom of God, Satan will be totally content with that. We forget that our allegiance is there. Above everything. Above anything. We're no longer Americans. God has been very gracious to let us grow up in a nation where the gospel freely goes forth. Where we have the freedom to gather and worship. But this is by no means a God-honoring nation. We're not Nigerians anymore. We're not Taiwanese anymore. We're not Cambodians anymore. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. That's what governs us. That's where our allegiance is at. That is what we fight for above anything and everything. The kingdom of God. And by the way, the best way to fight for the kingdom of God is with the sword of the gospel sword of the gospel. This isn't an instant work that's wrought in our hearts. We've talked about that. Like yeast affecting dough, it takes time. It's slow, but it's yet a constant process of sanctification. And I just want to briefly highlight that word, constant, because none of us are perfect. None of us constantly conform to our kingdom and our King's demands, do we? Our outlooks are always jaded by sin. Our hearts are always buying into this lie and that lie. But, the kingdom works a constant progression of sanctification. Where its citizens will be able to say, by God's good grace, I am not who I was a year ago, two years ago, ten years ago, however long. I see God's faithfulness working in my heart. I see the 
the yeast-like effect of the kingdom in my soul. In my soul. I believe it. When the Bible says that this kingdom has the power, the strength, and even the desire to make a sinner a saint. That's the kingdom we belong to. That's the kingdom of our king. For murderers actually become those who love other people. We're changed. Take hope, church, that this is a kingdom that we belong to that slowly and yet surely conforms its subjects into the image of its king. That's what we're talking about. What kind of effect does the kingdom have on the world and on humanity? Well, it can either destroy those who reject it and declare themselves enemies of God, or ultimately and simply, it conforms us to the image of its king. That is a gracious reality. And that's why this truth of Christ's teaching in verse 20 and 21 is so powerfully significant to me. Because I know who I am by way of comparison to Christ. Compared to Jesus, I might be, in today's age, the chief of sinners. The furthest from looking like Jesus. And yet God says, it is my business and the business of my kingdom to make you into the image of my Son. To make you into the image of Christ. To conform you and make you like Him. To share in His glory and in His perfection and in His purity and in His character. It is the glory of the King that will be the glory of the citizens of the kingdom. And that says something significant. It tells us it's a kingdom of love. A kingdom of love. fact, the truth is this kingdom and this this point is so significant to God realize that this kingdom will only be inhabited by those who were once enemies who are now made children. Nobody else will be a citizen of this kingdom. No other human being will enter into the gates of the king unless they've undergone the leaven type change in their souls. All of the citizens know the transforming power of the kingdom of God. The enemy would have us not believe that truth. The enemy would have you believe that you have to do certain good things to get into this kingdom. The enemy would have you believe that you have to clean yourself up to get into this kingdom. And believe me, there are tons and tons and tons of people buying that lie. Just this morning, driving down the road, come to church and seeing all these people getting ready to do other things today. Because their hope in eternal, eternal life and eternity, if they believe in it, is that they will one day stand before God and He'll say, yeah, you've been... You've been pretty good. 
The enemy would have you believe anything but the truth. And the truth is, you can't clean yourself up good enough, but the kingdom of God will do it for you. The kingdom of God will do it for you. I read an article this week that said there will be many harlots in heaven and many virgins in hell. You think your morality will save you. It will not. Only the transforming power of the kingdom makes you a citizen of that kingdom. Taking sinners and making them saints. Enemies and making them children. And I have to say, it is all true and it is all this way for one singular reason. Because that's the heart of the King. The heart of the King is to take the undeserving, change them forever, and give them life with Him and His kingdom. The transforming power of the kingdom of God comes from the one who personally penetrates the heart with unshakable love and undeniable compassion. He has never-ending grace you and I and he has an abundance of mercy that he is willing and desiring to pour out upon us he is a king who goes after those who have transgressed his law not to instill vengeance but to win their souls in redemption that's the king of the kingdom what a glorious truth what a glorious truth the kingdom of God only welcomes and only changes condemned sinners into liberated saints because the king wishes it to be so. And the king not only wishes it to be so, but he took the necessary steps to make it possible. It's not just that Christ sits back and says, well, I wish this would happen. Christ says, I care so significantly about the yeast-like effect of the kingdom upon the sinful souls of humanity that I am going to make it possible. Because where does the transforming power of the kingdom come? From the king hanging on the cross. From the king dumping out his blood. From the perfect, pure, all-glorious, more than eternally wealthy king taking on your sin and my sin and drinking in the full cup of the wrath of God that He might be able to take those who are ungodly and wicked and make them His. I always think of Romans chapter 5 when I think of this because even while we were still sinners and yet ungodly, Christ died for, for us. I mean, Christ took the first initiating step. But I also want to read a text. and I want to read it because my mind's not clear right now. I don't want to botch it. But in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, we see this, this picture laid out before us. Verse 11, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, making us different. 
And look who he's gone after. Look who he's training. Look who he's investing in. Vested in. It's those who are ungodly and full of worldly passions. Those are the people, says the king, that I am going to transform. Verse 13, he's, he's training us to wait for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And get this, verse 14, who gave himself, himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness. And not just that. And to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. The kingdom of God is only like leaven affecting the dough around it because the King gave Himself to make sinful people his transformed people. That's the glory of the kingdom of God. That's the glory of what Christ is teaching. That's what they don't get. Unfortunately, some will understand what Christ is saying in this text. But for the most, the ruler of that synagogue, this is what they didn't understand about the kingdom. Israel's liberation from Rome is a minute issue compared to humanity's souls liberated from hell and sin and captivity. That is what the kingdom of Christ is concerned about because that is what Christ is concerned about. And He personally accomplished the steps necessary at the cross and through His resurrection to make us transformed children of the kingdom. Now, stick with me just for a second. I didn't realize it was noon. I'm sorry. But I have to say this one last thing. Notice in verse 21, this woman takes leaven. We don't know how much. We know it's a little bit. Because that's all it takes. But then Jesus gives us a, a specific amount of flour. She hid it in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Three measures of flour is enough to feed 100 people plus. Now this woman is making enough bread that it would spoil before her family could eat it all. It might last a week, might last two weeks, but it's way too much flour. So why did Christ use this measurement? Uh, we've been maintaining here that the king knows how to describe his kingdom, right? And we've been maintaining that he's very deliberate and precise in his words. Did he just have a kind of a mental breakdown right here? Uh, that's certainly not the case. So why three measures of flour, enough to feed more than a hundred people, which was totally uncommon for anybody. We're not talking a, a wedding or anything here. It's just casually used. So what's the point? I think the point is this. Just as a little leaven could leaven three measures of flour and make enough bread for a hundred people, so too does the kingdom through the king have the transforming power to change a whole lifestyle of sin. 
affect a whole lump of wickedness and ungodliness. Your life might be a life of three measures of sin. The sin that's dwelt in your heart might be beyond comprehension to some people. I know the enemy would want you to believe that. It might be more sin than any individual should have ever ever participated in in their entire lives. It might be more sin than any Christian around you you know has ever experienced. The sin in your life might be the most sin committed by any person in this room right now. But you know what? Even you can be transformed. Even the kingdom can change your heart. Maybe this woman just miscounted. I don't think that's it. I think Jesus is saying, look how much flour a little leaven can affect. There is no one outside the transforming power and the gracious reach of the King of the Kingdom of God. No one. No amount of sin is too much. No amount of ungodliness and wickedness is beyond redemption. No amount is beyond Christ's care or beyond Christ's concern. He doesn't look at you and say, you've committed too much sin, I'm moving on to the next person. He looks at you and says, I have more than enough grace to go around. I'm rich in mercy. Paul even said that when he said, I'm the chief of sinners. I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 1. If I can find it. He says, I'm the chief of sinners in Christ to save me. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Aha, it is. Paul says this, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. What Paul is saying there is if Christ can save me, the three measures of sin in my life, He can save anyone. And that's exactly what I think Jesus is saying here about the kingdom. No one beyond saving. In closing, now wrapping up here real quick, I thought about the song we just sang. There is a fountain. I think it's a, such a beautiful song. In that second verse, it says this, The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, 
wash all my sins away. As vile as the chief of sinners, as vile as the most wicked, the truth is we can come to Christ and have all that washed away. The kingdom of God is not only strong, like a mustard seed that grows into a tree and houses birds, it's also transforming. And it has the strength to transform anybody regardless of what they've done, how they've lived, and who they are. It doesn't matter how much flour exists in your life, church. There is forgiveness at the cross. And that forgiveness is available because the King of the Kingdom has made it so by shedding His own blood. Won't you trust in Him to forgive? Do you come to Him for salvation? Maybe some of you are like me this week. I had a moment this week where I cried out to the Lord God. I'm having a hard time believing the promises. I'm having a hard time believing what you say about me as a forgiven child of God. If I could urge you in anything, believe this. That there is no sin that makes you too far from the reach of Christ. Even me, myself, can be transformed. And that is cause for celebration, rejoicing, and sharing with those around us. Lord, I thank You for the patience of Your people this morning to hear Your Word. I pray that You do a work in their hearts with it that it would affect them. That we would celebrate the transforming work that You have done and are doing in our lives. That we would understand as much as we want to be free from sin right now, sanctification is not immediate. Justification is. We are eternally justified before You, but we're still being transformed. Sometimes it takes the yeast a little longer to affect certain parts of the lump of dough that is our hearts. But nonetheless, it is working. What an amazing theme to know that you have planned this entire time a kingdom that will be established and never shaken. Pray God that it would be established in our hearts and do its transforming work even now. In Jesus' name, Amen.